Hi, guys, and welcome to the Healthified Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah McLaughlin, holistic health coach, writer, and wellness entrepreneur who has, for over 15 years, delved deeply into my passions of nutrition and health. Before we get started, this episode of Healthified is brought to you by our sister company, Gratisfied, a natural foods company I launched in order to make a more impactful change in the packaged food space. Our products are made with real food ingredients and blood sugar balance in mind. For a discount off of our products, visit gratisfied.com and use the promo code HEALTHIFIED at checkout. Today's guest is Sarah Thacker, licensed psychotherapist, certified EMDR therapist, certified yoga therapist, and certified holistic health coach. We have had Sarah on the podcast before, and she is a wealth of knowledge. In this conversation, we discussed what emotional eating is, why it occurs, and how it differs from an eating disorder, why exploring your emotional world is necessary in healing from emotional eating, and the small steps to take in the healing process, how Sarah works with her client's resistance and then how she works to increase their motivation in establishing a healthier relationship with food, the power of understanding your own whys behind certain choices and behaviors, all about self-sabotage and how to overcome it, tools you can use to have a better relationship with yourself and why that matters. Let's head to our chat. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on the Healthified podcast. It's so great to talk to you as always. It's great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for everyone listening, this is Sarah Thacker. She offers a holistic approach to mental and emotional well-being in her private practice. She is dedicated to supporting those who struggle with emotional eating, eating disorders, anxiety, trauma, and a variety of other challenges. As a licensed psychotherapist, therapist, certified EMDR therapist, certified yoga therapist, and certified holistic health coach. She integrates a variety of therapeutic techniques based on each individual's unique needs. Sarah believes that everyone deserves and has the capacity to feel their best in mind, body, and spirit. Um, That is amazing. And I know that you have so much to bring to the table to your clients with all of those certifications and your background. Um, So for those of you who don't know, um, Sarah and I have had a couple of wonderful lengthy conversations on emotional eating and food relationships over the years. Um, Our first conversation, a holistic look at emotional eating was episode eight in season one of the Healthified podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one, I would go back and give it a listen. It's a great overview of what emotional eating even is and what influences the behavior physiologically as well as mentally and emotionally and tools um, and takeaways to how you can kind of understand it and free yourself from it. Um, We also had a conversation more centered around emotional eating and COVID, which was a very real thing, um, still is a real thing. And that can be found on the Healthified website and our YouTube channel. Um, So today, Sarah, I want to get a little bit more into food relationships, um, establishing a more positive relationship with food, have it be kind of less of that explanatory information that people can go back and listen to during season one and have our conversation kind of be more relatable to you, our listeners, um, if this topic resonates with you. But before we kind of get into it, um, why don't we back up and you kind of just tell people listening your background story and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so thanks. Um, So 
I have been practicing as a therapist since 2002, <laughs> so for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I, my training is in art therapy. And since then, I just have been kind of always interested in growing and learning more and developing as a therapist and being able to offer more tools. And so eventually I went into the health coaching realm where I did the integrative nutrition program, which was wonderful and started just sort of doing health coaching a bit on the side and was looking to have kind of two separate things because it was more nutrition based and talking about food. And many people started contacting me because I'm a therapist and then also this health coach stuff. And they were like, well, it's not really that I don't know that I should be eating kale <clears throat> or whatever. It's that, why don't I choose it consistently? Or why do I seem to self-sabotage? Or what's the, you know, I can know all of the right things, but I don't do it. And, and it's almost like I'm out of body in some of these moments. Like when I just want to go for the binge or for, you know, the foods that, that I have deemed off limits or whatever. And so that started to really tell me something that there was something going on in, with so many people who struggle with this untangling of food as a coping strategy versus being able to, you know, like quote unquote, follow a diet or whatever. And so in my investigation beyond that, I started really learning more about intuitive eating and learning more about mindful eating and learning more about a therapeutic, like where, where what is an eating disorder? And what's really the spectrum of all of that? And diving deeper into my learnings in that and studied eating disorders more in depth and, um, and really seeing that it's this wide spectrum. And for before it becomes something that might be a full-blown disordered, you know, function within, within a person's life, it often starts with this. It, it becomes some form of soothing an emotion or soothing stress or calming down the nervous system that's very grounding in some way. And so as I just, and then my yoga has always been very personal. It was something I did the, initially did yoga teacher training for my own anxiety and just to help kind of manage myself and to be able to teach them on the side and just have fun with that. And, you know, through that, I've become a yoga therapist as well, where there's just really looking at more of the therapeutic elements and some more of the meditative elements and um, ways of really impacting mental well-being and physical and, you know, well-being through, through the yoga practice. And so I've integrated layers of that as well because so often people who struggle with emotional eating and stress eating, the nervous system is often somewhat dysregulated and they have a hard, and many of us have a hard time just finding our way back to balance. And so bringing in these elements with the layers of yoga and meditation and mindfulness has just been really game changing. Yeah. And, you know, wholeheartedly agree. And obviously as a holistic health coach myself, I mean, you just believe that health and a path to better health and healing wherever that starts for you is really a holistic journey. And, um, I do think in our society, the idea of getting healthier has kind of just been stripped down to nutrition and exercise. And so many people underestimate the power of the mind and they don't think of, they, they look more on the surface level of, um, why can't I just be consistent with my behavior or why can't I find sustainability with my eating habits? What's wrong with me? And then they start to question that. And it just turns into not only a poor relationship with food, but a poor relationship with themselves. And, um, I think kind of weaving in the yoga practice and meditation, which I want to get into a little bit later is so important because I think, um, 
either they have to kind of go coincidingly or the relationship with yourself and your body and establishing self-love and self-trust kind of has to come as a precursor. Um, but we can get into all of that too, but could you just provide an overview, um, definition of kind of what emotional eating even is for people who might not be clear on that and then how that differs from an eating disorder? Sure. So emotional eating really function at functions as a coping tool for an uncomfortable emotion. And so let's say, you know, anger or anxiety or, you know, even feeling deep sadness or loneliness or boredom, they become emotions that we desire to avoid in some form or another. And food becomes the filler for that emotional discomfort. And food triggers the pleasure center. So we know that that just biologically, it creates this feeling of dopamine release and feeling good. And so it can, it can absolutely function in that role. However, that becomes very dangerous when food feels like a solution to a problem, but then becomes the problem itself. Then the, the nature of the cravings or desire for food can become entangled even more deeply and and then become more disconnected from our emotional world and our true self. And so then we're trying to fill that hole and that becomes again, this more dangerous cycle. Often an eating disorder is, you know, it's something that becomes much more complex in terms of either extreme restriction behaviors or restriction and then binging behaviors. Uh, and that can look like anything, look like binging and purging. It can look like binging and excessive exercise or other ways to try to make up for the binge that happens, or it can just be a full-blown binge eating disorder where it just feels like there's uncontrollable um, desire and an interaction with food. And then there's lots of different nuances within that. There can be like chewing and spitting behaviors or other layers of um, disordered eating or eating disorder spectrum that become, again, they, they become a tool that still has to do often with disassociation from emotions and, and sending someone into a, a spiraling pattern that feels out of control once it once it really gets kind of full-blown like that. There can also be body dysmorphia within that where there's a part of the body that someone really views when, when they're looking at that within themselves in the mirror, they view it very differently than what you know someone else might see. And so then they want to control that or obsess about that in some form or another. And again, it becomes disordered. It's not necessarily something they're wanting to do or choosing. It just becomes the way of functioning and coping. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of emotions as very uncomfortable um, because they are uncomfortable. Um, and I actually wrote um, a Healthified Magazine article that I published yesterday because I had just hit the year mark of meditating for um, every day for a year straight. And I was writing this article and I was also reading this book um, I called indistractable. It doesn't really have anything to do with meditating, but in it was a study about how um, back in 2014, researchers asked a group of people to sit in a room with their thoughts for 15 minutes and there wasn't anything else that they could do. But there was um, a machine in the room that you could actually shock yourself. And 67% of the men participants and 25% of the women participants decided to shock themselves numerous times over and over instead of sitting alone with their thoughts. So clearly this is a thing. Um, and, you know, emotions, 
yes, they are uncomfortable. And, and a lot of the times as humans, we numb, try to numb that discomfort, as you're saying, through various behaviors or habits. And, you know, for some people it's alcohol, for some people it's drugs or gambling or shopping or work. Even, um, I've seen that in myself. Um, but why, in your opinion, you know, especially for women, I hate to generalize, but it's true. Can there be this emotional attachment or even kind of, you know, I don't know if the word addiction is too strong, but to turn to food in order to numb what's kind of going on there. It's extremely accessible. Mm. It is also, you know, for so many of the people that I've worked with over the years, there's often some root of trauma, whether it's, you know, whether it's like a full-blown big T trauma, meaning like something really like a huge adverse event happened, or it can be micro traumas. Like it can be a bunch of little T traumas kind of added up where they were made to feel that their feelings were not valid, were inconvenient, were um, inappropriate, you know, act like that's not ladylike or that's, you know, for women. And then for, you know, for boys, you know, like boys don't cry or whatever. And so like there's, there's often these kind of societally and, you know, within the family kind of dynamics that can happen that teach us that our feelings are not right or they aren't good or that we should be better than them in some mm -hmm. form or another. And then we do learn to kind of either, you know, cut off from those emotions or stuff those emotions, or when we feel them, we want to do anything else, but actually feel it, like mm -hmm. really feel it. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that tends to be for most people where they learned that their feelings were not invalid is in some form of childhood experience and not necessarily it's always parents, you know, it can be a teacher who, you know, buttoned you up. It could be, or like, you know, you know, <laughs> cause the discomfort. It could be peers picking and, you know, bullying and things like that. So it's not necessarily just something that may have happened in the home, but it could happen anywhere and that that individual perceived as a traumatic experience. And then things like boredom or loneliness or other things that leave us kind of just open with our emotional experience to come forward, then it's like, whoosh, no, thank you. And that's often where those are kind of the lead in experiences where it's like, okay, what's, what do I have to eat? You know, and mm -hmm. it just becomes this automatic association with feeling better or feeling less, feeling less uncomfortable. And so that's, that tends to be for most people where that becomes for some people, it's just intense stress too. And it becomes something like while studying um, or while, you know, in other very stressful circumstances, it's like, oh, well, if I just eat these, you know, M&Ms and whatever else while I'm sitting here and drink all these Cokes, you know, then I'll get through this studying, I'll get through this, whatever. And then we start associating, well, I can't do anything stressful without sugar, without food, without, you know, something that makes it exciting to have to do this thing. And so it can get entangled in those ways as well, where it just becomes a behavioral association with stress. Yeah. So it's almost kind of, you know, on one end of the spectrum can just turn into a habit. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum is this um, pretty strong chemical response to the foods that people are choosing um, in order to quell some negative emotion. And can you explain a little bit more about that, you know, kind of more on a, the nutritional basis, or I should say lack thereof on a nutritional basis of those foods that people turn to and why they can become so addicting? Because when people turn to food 
to quell negative emotions, it's not like they're turning to, like you said, kale and grilled chicken and hard boiled eggs, right? There's, there's that, that processed junk food or sugary food. So can you kind of explain why that is? Sure. Anything that has any type of sugar is going to mm-hmm. just make us feel good. It's, <laughs> you know, when you were a kid and went to the doctor and like, you got a lollipop, right? Cause it was like, you got a shot and that was uncomfortable. You got a lollipop. So there was this dual association with that experience that, Oh, it's not that bad. Right. And you don't for, and, and like sugar just really does actually triggers the pleasure center instantly. Mm-hmm. And so it is very effective in that way um, in terms of just, making you feel a little bit better <laughs> and, and helping to kind of forget the discomfort. And, and that gets entangled in, in an uncomfortable way, kind of because, right, like food should be pleasurable when we're eating, you know, something that tastes delicious and it's a choice and you're doing it mindfully, it, then it should, you know, like having M&Ms or chocolate cake or whatever it is that you're enjoying, but it's really when it becomes the, the go-to food to, to numb stress. And then it becomes something that might turn in towards a binging behavior, then we have coupled with that shame because mm-hmm. there's this feeling of like, I shouldn't be eating this or this is, you know, this is unhealthy or whatever. And so I think more, so whether, yes, I think kind of biologically sugar, fat, salt combinations, you know, just kind of like ease everything, make everyone feel a little bit better, cheese and bread, you know, like those kinds of combinations numb just enough to kind of quell anxiety, bring us down a notch. But then it's really, when it's something that we're looking at or viewing as I shouldn't be doing this, or this is wrong or bad of me, or we're judging that experience of eating the food, then there's shame associated with that. That's where I really feel like it starts to become something much more, um, much more painful and much more of, you know, the desire to, to do it becomes enraptured with this fear and shame kind of dynamic that then propels more of that, um, the, like the negative cycle of emotional eating because the shame then triggers the desire to eat and the desire to eat triggers more shame. And so it's a, it becomes this very negative, very dangerous cycle. Yeah. Because whatever the starting emotion is, let's say it was stress or boredom or loneliness. And then you have that extra layer of the guilt and shame, you know, it just, like you said, perpetuates the cycle, but just kind of almost, I would imagine makes it into something a little bit deeper for people, um, from a negative emotional standpoint. So what have you seen with your clients or how have they, um, kind of relayed to you their experiences with that? Because, you know, I, I imagine that when we, when we choose a behavior and we're doing it in order to achieve a certain feeling. And so if the starting emotion is say, let's say boredom. So we're looking to become less bored. Um, in your experience, does that ever work for a longer term? I mean, I hate to use that word, but like what's on the other side of it that you've heard in your practice? Um, like, does it kind of do the trick from a longer term sustainability perspective? You mean food? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does the trick temporarily, but no, it yes. doesn't, it does not do the trick long-term. I mean, it can, it, it can. And that's when people become very, very, you know, frustrated and overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think that's often too, because inevitably for some people who, not everybody, but for some, many people who go towards sugar, fat, salt, kind of like, and are be, develop that sort of binge cycle of negative emotion, 
equal, or I really like to just consider uncomfortable emotions because mm-hmm. all emotions are, are good. <laughs> like, cause we need them. Right. Right. They're, they're natural. Kind of right. Yes. But, um, but as we might associate them as being negative or uncomfortable, then it triggers again, that cycle. And so then often what happens is people find themselves looking for something to try to control that, which then they seek out a diet or they seek out something else that's going to try to, you know, get it together. You know, I'm not going to eat those, you know, cupcakes anymore, whatever, and donuts and, or whatever the, um, the trigger foods have become. And then the diet then creates such an extreme restriction without really healing what's going on with the emotional world. And so temporarily it might feel good if they're, you know, what they're seeking potentially is weight loss and then they're achieving some weight loss, but then inevitably the diet is over. And so then that cycle continues again. And unless you really work on what is the emotional pull for that and how do we heal from that layer and deeper, will anyone ever really find either, you know, peace within their body, peace within their, you know, mental, emotional world. And, and then also this ability to untangle food from being a coping strategy and really looking at food to be just food and in a good way. So not just, so it's like, just, you know, just food, like we can just eat, you know, hard boiled eggs and kale. If we don't like that, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. It's really looking at how do we find balance within that and still finding pleasure in foods that bring you a sense of joy, no matter what they are, but just making sure that it's you're really choosing that in a moment that feels like a choice, not like a need. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about how people can establish a positive food relationship. Um, But I think what's really important to point out is that if someone is turning to food in this way, like talk, thinking about those other substances, habits, behaviors that I mentioned earlier, um, with all of them, you can just go cold Turkey if you really needed to. But the thing with food is that you can't do that. Like you literally need it multiple times a day in order to survive. So how do you kind of start someone on a healing journey, um, when this is the case? Yeah, this is always the trickiest part, right? Because you do have to make choices every single day about what to eat and, how to be with your food. And so I really encourage really, really small steps to get started, really looking at what to eat so that you're focusing on how will I nourish my body today so that, you know, ideally you want to get an adequate nutrition. And then beyond that, then looking at another really small step, like can you eat one meal or snack a day mindfully so that you're just sitting down and just being present with the food and letting your body be your guide. So are you hungry? What are you hungry for? And how, how does it taste? What are the, what is the experience of eating actually like for you? And, you know, in some people who are like, I don't have time for mindful eating, or as soon as I do it, like I think of 99 other things I have to do or whatever, then I'm to say, can you do like the first two bites mindfully, you know? So there's just some engagement with really just being present with connecting that this food is going into my body and it's impacting my body in some way. And so that's always the first step is just trying to re-engage with food in a different way. So very often binges become either sneaky or they become, um, they feel like they have to be done in this very secretive way because, you know, again, it just, it can invoke that sense of shame. And so often when people describe a binge and then get to the other side of it, it is not pleasurable. They do not enjoy the experience and the food did not, they did not really remember tasting the food. Maybe the first bite was arousing in some way of like, Ooh, that tastes good. But then beyond that, it's like, 
there's almost like fear and, and yeah. certainly some shame that goes along with that. And so what we're looking for is to try to change that dynamic with that, you know, even if it's a snack that you might deem as, you know, like quote unquote unhealthy, um, just, but be able to do that in plain sight of other mm -hmm. people and to not to remove some of the shame of that and to be able to just sit. And if that's what you're choosing in that moment, then just eating it and letting it be something that you're doing mindfully and letting it be something you're engaging with in a way that shifts your relationship with the process of eating these particular foods. And then really those two things in conjunction. So being able to look at food as like, again, how am I going to nourish my body today? So that there, there is the intention around like, yeah, I'm going to make sure I get in my leafy greens and some protein and, you know, something that's going to provide energy in a way that fuels my body and helps it function well. But then also how am I going to eat, whether it's foods like whatever, but, or if a food that might be considered like this off my diet food or whatever, how can you do that in plain sight? And in a way that feels like it's, to begin to unravel it from the process of binging so that just letting yourself eat it, sit with it, be present with it and enjoy it. If that's the intention. Yeah. Because I imagine, like you said, when someone kind of is in that autopilot mindset with a binge, there's just this feeling of powerlessness and lack of control. So to kind of bring consciousness to the eating experience, no matter what it is, um, even if it's those foods that are more nourishing and nutrient dense, or maybe those foods that wouldn't be considered as nourishing, as long as you're kind of conscious of the choice and mindful with the experience, then I feel as if that is powerful in and of itself. Yeah. So aside from kind of the lack of time that people kind of push back on with the mindful eating side of things, what other resistance do you see with your clients um, when you kind of have um, these types of conversations and um, propelling them on their healing journey? And how do you kind of move them past that resistance? Resistance is always going to be there. And so that's something I try to remind that motivation is something we have to reignite every single day. It's in the mindset. It is a daily practice and there are going to be plenty of days. You just don't want it. You don't feel like it. And that it's bigger than that. Right. It's like, we often start with kind of like, what is the end goal? You know, like, what is the, what is the vision that you really have for yourself? And so we really try to work with that on a daily basis of some, or at least, you know, like a, as many days a week as is reasonable, but to look at how do you engage with what you really say you want? And then being able to look at what choices are serving that purpose, that greater purpose that you feel like you have. And that is where the motivation comes from often. And when it's very disentangled from something like a weight goal or something like that. So we'd really try to pull away from that and look at, you know, I want to be able to, you know, I want to feel like I can get up and down from the floor really easily or play with my kids or whatever, or I can, you know, take, get out and take a walk and go for a hike or whatever and feel really just like really great and healthy in my body and not feel like weighed down or not, not even, I'm not talking like physical weight, but we feel like I just am like, I don't feel good with how mm -hmm. I am with myself. And mm -hmm. so the idea of what is really the vision and the end end goal that you're looking for, and then how do we work with that on a day-to-day -day basis in some form to stay, to stay tethered to it, to stay in some form or another, the belief that that's possible that, and the hope that change is really possible if you believe in yourself and if you want it. And then we work with kind of trudging through the resistance that's natural and it's going to come up and absolutely 100% backsliding 
and self-sabotage will be part of the process. <laughs> and what yes. we try to do is look at how do we reframe that so that it's like, how many, you know, like, you know, like how many backslides do you, are you okay with or whatever? And so sometimes it's like, how many times do you have to have that like binge overeating, really uncomfortable feeling in your body, feeling sick, whatever else, how many times does that have to happen before you start to really make the change? And for some people it's a lot and that's okay. And for some people, you know, let's say if you've been doing that several times a week for years, and now we're looking at it being twice a week, you know, that's progress. And so we're really looking at like, what is the progress? And it is not an overnight shift. It is not a quick fix. It is something that requires a lot of internal reflection that at times you just aren't going to want to do. It's mm -hmm. going to require making choices that are hard, which again, very often we don't want to do. And the change process, that pre-contemplation phase is like, I'm not really sure. And then contemplation, like we're thinking about it really hard and like working towards it and then change happens. So it's, it's something that we really have to ease into in a way that gives, gives kind of the, the movement to actually get there. <laughs> and it's never, we're, and we're never ultimately there, there, right? It's just this constant journey of changing and shifting goals and mindset and all of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's just a huge testament and beautiful thing about your work, because clearly, you know, this work isn't easy, whatever it is that you might be struggling with. I mean, humanness in and of itself isn't easy, but even if you're struggling with specifically like an emotional eating or disordered eating or what have you in order to heal and change whatever that behavior is that you want to, I think that's just the wonderful thing of working with somebody such as yourself, because to kind of have that accountability and break things back into baby steps. And I love the idea of kind of starting with this overall vision of what you want to achieve, um, because it sort of brings to light how much consciousness for your individual choices. I mean, not from the sense of that you have to overthink every single choice, but just to kind of see that you actually have more choice than you think you do. And so when you can kind of get out of that um, habit formed, you know, the neural pathway grooves or what have you, and, and bring more consciousness and mindfulness to more individual behaviors throughout your day, you can kind of empower yourself to move towards your goal, knowing that, you know, a choice is either going to serve you or it's not going to serve you. So which one are you going to choose? Right. Yeah. And if you choose the one that's not going to serve you, why are you doing it? You know, like, and just understanding your own whys behind those and not, and again, that helps disentangle the shame from it. That's like, well, this is my choice right now. And, and if it is going to provoke shame, why am I going to do it? And so, and, and if you can just say, okay, well, I'm choosing to do it. And this is my reasoning right now. But if it's, if it really doesn't serve again, like how many times does that have to happen before we're ready to say like, okay, this is enough. <laughs> I'm ready now, yeah. you know? And so, and again, it can be a lot. It can be many, many, many times because we have so much to learn right. about our own individual processes and untangling all of that. Yeah. And about just ourselves in general. And I think that that is one of the greatest gifts of this life is to get to know yourself. And I know that when I kind of started to do quote unquote inner work back probably like four years ago, I mean, it was the first time that I ever really kind of like made a decision to get to know me. I mean, I was always someone who hated to be alone. Um, and now like I'm a self-proclaimed introvert that loves to be alone because I think when, the more you get to know yourself in the way that your mind works, um, the more that you kind of grow and expand fully into more of your true authentic self, which is always more loving than, you know, if 
you were just kind of going through your days, you know, in programming that maybe wasn't serving you, um, if that makes any sense. Um, And I want to talk about this concept of self-sabotage because I think so many people struggle with it and it's just um, a concept that fascinates me and I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in my health coaching clients. Um, So will you explain to people a little bit more about what self-sabotage is? Yeah. Self-sabotage is literally that. It is knowing what you want, knowing what you want to do and just not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Not making that choice. If you're, if you're asking like, does this choice serve my vision? And the answer is no. And you keep making that same choice over and over and over. Really have to look at, is that really what you want? And the self-sabotage 99% of the time is just coming straight up from fear and a lack of belief in yourself that you can change and that it is uncomfortable, it is hard, and it requires this inner work that so many people shy away from because it is uncomfortable at times. Very often when you start with the inner work process, you realize like, I'm not very nice to myself, you know? And so there's a lot to, there's a lot to wade through with the own inner workings of our minds of where this negative self-talk has started from and our parts of self that are just really hurt, you know, and, and really suffering at times and in a lot of deep pain and not wanting to have to look at that pain or walk through the wound of the pain. And so there's just a lot of like, ah, well, that's going to require that. No, thanks. And then we, we choose whatever, you know, other thing. And then we can, you know, commiserate about that, which is a very comfortable space to be in mm-hmm. potentially like the, you know, the shame of a binge might be a more comfortable place to be in than this feeling of loneliness or something around like maybe, you know, questioning our own lovability or questioning our own self-worth. And yet when we're in that shame spiral with food, we know exactly what the dialogue will be, what the inner narrative is and changing that and becoming closer towards, you know, our true self takes a lot of chipping away at some of those old belief systems that often have gotten hardwired, right? We, we create like these stories and programming that we have from our childhood or onward become these negative feedback loops at times around these, these stories and beliefs that I'm not good enough or I'm not inadequate or whatever. And then the self-saboteur part of ourselves just comes in and is like, yep, see, look at that. Here's another, here's a whole nother, you know, reason why I am not good enough or why I'm unworthy or whatever. And and that just perpetuates the, the story. And so what we have to do is interrupt that feedback loop very consistently with a lot of effort and a lot of inner work and, and, and then being able to really change that internal narrative of what do I want to be saying to myself? How do I want to be thinking and feeling about myself? Um, and really being able to make choices like how do I want to feel even today? And that is an intentional way to set up your day. And it feels like, you know, often you might wake up anxious or frustrated or just like mad about the world and then just kind of feel like, okay, well, there's my excuse, right. Or my reasoning behind, like, I'm just, I'm not going to do that workout that I said I was going to do today. Like, I don't feel good. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well, blah, 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 you know, and then that's essentially self-sabotage, right. Cause we set out to do something and then we don't do it. And then we feel badly about ourselves and that can spiral other negative potential um, behaviors and thought patterns in the day. Let's say you really do wake up and you feel miserable. You had a rough night's sleep and you can 
really look at that and it feels like more of an act of self-compassion to not do the workout potentially, then you can look at it in that way of saying, I care deeply for myself. And right now my body does not feel well enough to exercise. So no, and, but it's really looking at it from that way instead of like, oh, see, I suck. I, did, I didn't do it again. And so this whole saboteur will then be like, see, so now today I can, you know, just go out and do a binge and do this other stuff. And I'll like tomorrow will be the new day. So that's always like the, the, I call it the internal deal maker. So it's like got a deal for us. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, well, it started tomorrow or well, you know, you, now you can just have a whole like cheat day or bad day or whatever, which often comes as a product of, you know, being on too many diets and, yeah. and feeling that, that concept of, um, cheating or whatever. But the idea of just, yeah, how do you really relate to the moment and when you're feeling like you don't want to do what it is you said you were going to do and the, the way that you were operating in this, you know, movement towards change and then choosing not to do it for whatever reason. And it's your relationship with that moment of that choice that really will be either an effort of sabotage and will throw you backwards, which is again, fine. Just Backsliding is part of the process and we can learn from it, but then you can also approach it from this self-compassion where you're also changing the narrative and the dialogue. And so it's really about how do you approach that? And the self-saboteur will always be sneaky, negative, mean, you know, cold (laughs) and, and make you feel guilt. There will be guilt and shame most likely along with that. Yeah. And I think that goes back into establishing a better relationship with yourself and kind of that, um, you know, how you talk to yourself, you know, there's that kind of saying out there that's like, do you talk to yourself like you would a mother, sister, best friend, or are you the meanest to yourself of anyone through your inner dialogue? And, um, you know, I think the, the self-talk, the negative self-talk is so real for so many people. And it's also hard to overcome as someone who has really struggled with it. Um, and you know, kind of, um, hung out in, in victim mode for, for years and how that almost felt more comfortable for me than speaking to myself in a loving way. So when it comes to actually doing the inner work and establishing more positive inner dialogue, what are some of those tools that you tell your clients that they can do in order to make those shifts? Yeah, so absolutely, there's a couple different tools that are incredibly beneficial and powerful. The first is really being able to view the thought as just a thought and then look at how to change your dynamic and relationship with it. So if the thought is, I'll never change, then really being able to look, is this even a true thought? And if, it, if you really aren't sure because you feel like, well, I haven't changed up to now, whatever, it could be true, then is it useful for me to be thinking this right now? And no, it is just not useful. What is it doing to you? It's making you feel, you know, shame. It's making you feel bad about yourself. It's making you not move forward towards what you say you want. And so if we look at that, and if it's not a useful thought to be thinking, then what is the opposite thought? I can change. And so what does it feel like just to kind of sit with that thought for a second? Because if this thought isn't true or useful, then why not just explore what the opposite thought is and just give a little bit of space to that and just to sit in that. Well, I can change. Oh, that feels very different, right? And so then we're starting to look at, okay, what's happening in your body now? So what is the somatic experience that you're having when you sit with this thought that's a bit more you know, hopeful and positive and feels like maybe more of the one you'd want to try on for a minute. 
And so we look at, okay, well, that feels very different than what's happening in your body when you're thinking I'll never change. And, you know, it feels very blocked or uncomfortable or butterfly, you know, like the discomfort that can happen. So really being able to look at what is the internal experience that you're having with a particular thought, and then how can you shift your relationship with it if it is not a useful thought to be thinking? And this is for any fear-based, you know, like future projected negative thought that we have about ourselves. And then really we look at what is really true right now and how to reframe the thought. So what really is true right now is I am frustrated that I don't seem to be making the, putting in the effort that I say that I want, um, but today I'm going to try to like at least believe that change is possible or whatever. So we reframe it to make it what is really true right now. How do we bring it back to what is real and what are the underlying feelings? So there, there's some frustration, right? There's, there's a little bit of hopelessness or whatever, but how can we look into that rather than feeling like this whole overarching statement of I'll never change. And so that's one way to look at it. And then I also really encourage doing um, self-compassion work, which is just based on the Kristen Neff, the self, she literally wrote the book, Self-Compassion, um, the three-step process of how to practice self-compassion in real time. So first is just looking at what is, what is my feeling right now and what is that representing for me, you know, or what is the experience of this feeling just showing me? And then, you know, so the first is just a well awareness of what is true. And then the second is universality. It's being able to see this is something that as a human being, I will feel that all humans, it's part of humanity, all humans feel this way sometimes. And then the third step is to speak to yourself as you would a best friend in relation to that. So if this feeling is hopelessness and fear and sadness that I'm not making these changes and I'm afraid that I'll never change, then how, what would you say to a best friend who was coming to you with that? And how can you offer those same kind words towards yourself? I know this is hard. It is so challenging. Change is really, really rough. And it sometimes feels very scary and daunting, but you can do it. You know, I'm here with you, whatever. And so there's this opportunity to really like, whoa, those are, those are not the way, you know, the words I'm usually saying, like, usually mm -hmm. it's like, you suck, you're a loser. You don't do enough, you know, whatever. Right. And so to be able to say like, oh, wow, this is hard. And let's just take it easy on yourself and, you know, take a deep breath. You got this, you know, that feels so, so energetically different. And again, when you can then go into the body and notice, well, what does it feel like when I'm thinking those, you know, I suck, I'll never change da, 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 versus the, that self-compassion layer of how I would offer that same advice to somebody that I cared for. How can I give that to myself? And then what does that feel like? It feels dramatically different. And so when we can start to encourage those kinds of positive internal experiences and comfort, like comforting the self through the self-compassion, you can be together with your pain and with your discomfort, along with this feeling of care, nurturing and support, which then starts to propel towards hope. So with kind of the getting clear on the thoughts and having those inner conversations with yourself, do you ever advise people to put pen to paper and write things down? Or are these things happening in people's heads? I really encourage writing down uh -huh. if that's the way you process. Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate for like seeing it, you know, it kind of sears it into your, burns into your eyes kind of mm -hmm. feeling of like you see it. And so you see, and so it's like, it can be a little bit easier to remember. Some people are much more, you know, like they like to just kind of go through it in their mind. And that's, if, as long as it, whatever works, you know, really. So if that works for you just to kind of go through and you know, the three-part process or the, you know, is it true? Is it useful? 
what's the opposite thought? And then what's the reframe? Like if you're really good at just kind of going through that and giving yourself the opportunity to do that in your mind, great. But I honestly, I think writing it down is one of the best ways to practice. One of the best ways to really get a good, hard, objective look at that thought and to not, because when it's in our head or when we're feeling an emotion in the body, it is so intense, but then when we can pull it down and name it and really lay it out there on the page, often it creates a much different relationship with that particular thought and that particular emotion. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this before. Um, but you know, when I, again, was kind of starting on my inner work journey, it was a lot of those spirituality books that kind of, um, jumpstarted my process, you know, Byron Katie, Eckhart Tolle, Michael Singer's The Untethered Soul. And I think reading some of those books and even starting to understand that your thoughts are not you, Mm -hmm. um, that can be really powerful because without consciousness for that, then things kind of just live subconsciously. And I'm a big believer about how we store subconscious feelings, emotions, what have you like in the physical body. So again, that holistic piece, um, but getting clear that, you know, it's, it's such a hard thing for your mind to wrap itself around because it literally can't, um, but to kind of disassociate who you are, um, capital Y you from the thoughts that you're thinking on a daily basis can be really great. And, and journaling and yoga were two other, um, modalities that super helped me. And I think if you can find a great, um, yoga teacher practice, what have you, that can sort of even like, I know I have yoga teachers who are also kind of life coaches. Like you kind of go through a flow and you flow float out of there because they're saying all these inspiring things and a grounding you in your body through your physical practice, but also kind of adding in that more spiritual element, which can be really profound. Um, so yeah, I think the journaling and the putting pen to paper is one thing that was hugely beneficial for me as well. Um, so what kind of breakthroughs do you see kind of in your clients with this work? Well, those, those are huge. And I think mm-hmm. I also very much encourage a mindfulness practice or meditation or whatever, again, is comfortable for each individual and what that might look like. But the opportunity to look inward is like, you know, like you said, those people who are like going and shocking themselves rather than just sitting there. So really in the mindfulness or meditation process, we really learn how to become the silent observer of our experience. And when you witness your mind and your thoughts versus you kind of, you can become the thinker of the thoughts or you can be the witness of the thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're the witness of those thoughts, it really starts to change your relationship with them because you can be aware that I am not my thoughts. They do not have to define me. And, you know, there's like a a simple exercise within yoga kind of um, philosophy that's like, you know, can you picture a lemon? You know, can you picture, you know, a square? Can you picture, you know, a street lamp? you know, you, you're not those things. And yet, mm-hmm. so, but you can, they're in your head. And so it's the same idea of disentangling thoughts that are, we are our thoughts. Like, no, it's just, just like that, you know, picturing the light, you know, the light post, it's, it's just something it's there and we can conjure it up, but we can also let it go. We right. can allow that image to fade the same with our thoughts. And so really being able to tune into that internal witness or the silent observer of your thoughts in a choiceless awareness meditation or some other form of mindfulness of just like being the observer of all these potential distractions that can come forward, just like we might hear 
a sound outside while we're meditating and if we're like, oh, that's so annoying. It's like, it's just the sound, right? And the right. same thing we can do like these thoughts, oh, they're so annoying or nope, they're just thoughts. Like they're just, they're just part of the noise of life right now. And I can make room for them and I can observe them, but I don't have to live on the roller coaster or in the story of those thoughts mm -hmm. all the time. And so that is another huge part of the process in terms of breakthroughs. It's being able to see that through these practices. So, so like, you know, the thought work is really kind of just like super cognitive behavioral focus where it's like, you know, being able to, is this true? Is this you? So you're like, so you're really evaluating what are the facts about the thought? So you're really trying to get in there, hone in and kind of dig around with your own logic mm -hmm. <laughs> around it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then with the self-compassion, you're starting to create the softness towards the self. You're starting to create a new inner dialogue, a new narrative, how you want that to be and feel when you are interacting with yourself. And then meditation allows you to look at all of those different facets and components that really change your relationship with your whole internal world whatsoever, and then make those thoughts and feelings in the emotional world not so scary. So just like we were saying, you know, there are no negative feelings, even though we experience them, it might be like, well, that doesn't feel good. It is negative, you know, but, yeah. but every emotion shows up for a purpose. It is there to let us know about our experience of the present moment. And every emotion is valid. It is important and it has a purpose. And so when you start to also then look at the dynamics of your relationship with your emotions, it can be so, that's another huge breakthrough often for people. It's like, oh, anger is not bad. Like, <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm a bad person because I feel angry or that right. I'm naughty or, you know, whatever those associations are that we have with an emotion. It's like, that, that's actually saying I need to set a boundary. That means that I'm not okay with how I'm being treated, how I'm being spoken to, how that person was, you know, interacting with me. And I can say something about that. It doesn't mean I need to bottle it up and at some moment have this huge explosion, <laughs> which is, rage that is often the the way that we view anger is rage which is out of controlled you know um anger and so it becomes something much different when we're out of ourselves and we're having that response but when you're angry it's just that's the emotion is very important because it lets you know like hey that wasn't okay i need to do yeah. something and yeah. the same with guilt. It's like guilt is very helpful. It's like our conscience. It says, oh, that was not an okay way to speak to that person or it wasn't an okay thing to do. But then if you're feeling guilty, but you're like really checking in, well, hey, did I do something wrong? Like I feel guilty that I ate this thing or that I did this, whatever. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not, <laughs> I don't need to feel guilty for that. That's a, you know, yeah, if I wasn't, wasn't happy that that's something, you know, I had a, you know, an, an overeating experience or something. Sure. You can say like, that wasn't how I wanted to be with it, but there's no need for the guilt. So we can really start to tease apart. What are these emotions that are coming in that we often have these associations with that are like, you know, make it stop, you know, <laughs> instead with the, I think through meditation and mindfulness, it gives us that observation first, and then an opportunity to go a little deeper into what is the purpose of this emotion? Why is it even here in the first place? And how can I change my relationship with that emotion and actually welcome it in and give it what it needs. And then that that's, you know, life-changing. And so that's yeah. often yeah. where, where the kind of like breakthroughs kind of come in of like, Oh wait, these are mine. Like, I don't need to avoid them. I don't need to stuff them. I don't need to throw them away. I don't need to ban them. I can invite them in mm -hmm. and befriend them and then make decisions based on how I'm feeling versus just making a react, like just being totally reactive to how I'm feeling. Yeah. And that right there, I mean, it just sounds like the development of self-compassion when you can kind of take that shift from judgment of your emotions to more um, curiosity and just ask like, what is this about? And to kind of proceed from there and a little bit more self 
compassionate way versus like beating yourself up for even feeling them in the first place. Exactly. Um, so, you know, kind of, we've been talking about, um, extreme things. So, you know, like the binge eating, the disordered eating. Um, but what about someone who is like, okay, well, I don't feel as if I'm an emotional eater and, um, I don't have an eating disorder, but I would really like to establish a healthier relationship with food, whatever that may be. Maybe they have a history of dieting, um, or they just want to fill their plate with more nutrient dense, nourishing foods. What can someone do, um, to kind of just establish that more positive relationship with food if there is kind of even like guilt around the eating experience? Yeah, I think one of the first, the first levels is the non-judgment. So mindful eating is, mindfulness is paying attention from moment to moment with a non-judgmental awareness. Mm -hmm. And so when you are eating in that same way, you're paying attention to what you're eating, but with the non-judgmental awareness. And so again, you're not labeling foods as good or bad, but being able to look at, does the choice really serve? So if your vision is, I just feel like I'm kind of out of sorts with food, maybe been, you know, like quarantined, kind of like soothing for a bit. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to be like it's moving in a disordered eating direction or anything like that, but it's just not feeling like you're having the healthiest relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just being able to look at what is the vision then? What is, where do you want to be with, with your relationship with food? And then being able to ask those kinds of questions around like, does this choice serve what I want? And being able to look at really starting from the gentle nutrition space, um, which is a huge facet of the intuitive eating where it's getting away from the dieting mentality, not judging our food and, and instead being able to really say, well, how do I make sure that as I'm kind of planning for the day, like where are my nutrients gonna come from? Where am I going to make sure that I'm well nourished and well balanced. And if you're giving your body what it really needs in order to thrive and to, you know, to get all the proper nutrients, to have a healthy energy, to have, to feel like, you know, your digestion is normal and healthy. Your skin feels like it's, you know, good and healthy. Those are all going to be places that things are showing up often when things are out of balance or like in our skin or in our digestion. So when those things are all feeling like they're in balance and you're feeling like you're feeling good about the foods and the decisions that you're making, the choices that you're making, then that's going to beget more of that, right? So when right. you feel like I'm, oh yeah, like I had a really great day today in terms of, you know, it was like maybe having cravings, but it was, they were really, they were emotional. They were like, oh, this is just kind of what I do now to soothe my, my boredom or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. just like, but it's not necessarily again in that disordered space, but it's being able to say, okay, well, I'm going to make sure that I have things to do to feel stimulated when I'm bored. And I'm also going to try to just focus on again, what nutrients am I going to enhance today? And what, you know, how can I make that taste amazing? I think mm -hmm. that often, you know, get kind of hung up with like healthy food is boring. And I know you have great cookbooks that prove that is the otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> but that really that we can make healthy food amazing and, mm -hmm. and really, you know, dynamic and delicious. And so, yeah. So really just making sure too, that your, your food is in, you know, it's, is fun and it's not just like health food is really boring and yucky. It's <laughs> so right. really looking at how do you make it just kind of feel like you're nourishing yourself, but you're also providing a sense of feeling really like excited about what you're going to eat enjoying it in the process. And then, and being really, I think non-judgmental too, in the choices that you're making, if you are having a craving, being able to evaluate, is it 
like a, is it an emotionally based craving? And if it is, then we got to figure out what else to do with those emotions. Cause that's just never going to be never going to serve. And it, even if it doesn't feel like it's in any kind of disordered place right now, that doesn't mean that it can't down the road if it continues to be um, a deeper and deeper problem. And so that's where it's great if you can kind of just get in there and if you're having emotionally based cravings to really make sure that you're addressing them, try to get more comfortable with your emotional world, try to develop coping strategies and knowing your go-to emotions and then being able to really turn away from that. And that's going to help re-engage with ensuring that you're listening to your body, you're in tune with what your body really wants and needs, which are nutrients and, and healthy foods, but then also not being obsessive about that and just letting it, letting, letting it be in, in terms of like balance and not getting so mentally stuck that it starts to feel like you're inching towards a diet. Exactly. And I think just as emotions are information, so are cravings actually. So if you can kind of understand that when you have a craving, there is likely something under the hood that's going on and to use that as information and to look upon it without judgment and instead curiosity, um, you can understand that there is probably a non-food related choice that you can turn to, um, to sort of quell that craving a, but also now with however many recipes there are on the internet, like there's always a healthier way to satisfy a sweet or salty craving. Um, and I think that's kind of where the nutrition and the healthified foods come into play, because I think that there is kind of this misconception with intuitive eating. And I remember, you know, health coaching and kind of talking about giving yourself permission to, um, eat and enjoy, but that doesn't necessarily mean you just throw your nutritional values out the window. So I was always kind of walking this fine line with my clients, both on the mindful eating side of things, um, and finding like joy and enjoyment with food and kind of teaching them the objective nutritional science, because I think a lot of the times people start from a place of like, Oh, well, but my body's craving Oreos and ice cream. Right. So, so there, there is this line that you have to walk in terms of teaching them that like the nutritional science behind the real foods and that what your body actually needs. Right. Um, so how do you kind of navigate that with your clients um, and kind of starting them out on kind of, cause there's so much information out there and I think mm -hmm. that's where it gets so confusing and overwhelming and frustrating. Right. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. So the tricky thing is, I don't know that a body ever craves ice cream and Oreos. Mm, good <laughs> I point. think that's yes, always going to be a, a mental craving or whatever. And it tastes good. So I'm not saying that we're not craving it in a way that's going to be satisfying. I would just say if you're craving ice cream and Oreos, how often is that happening? Why, when is it happening? What are some cues around like what is really going on there? eating ice cream and Oreos, you know, once in a while with some friends on a birthday or whatever, that's really no trouble, right? It's, and right. you can enjoy it and you don't feel guilty about it and it's pleasurable. But if we're eating Oreos and ice cream every single day, then we are setting our body up for trouble, right? Because we know that like there, there is really sound nutritional science around sugar being, and not that sugar is the devil because it's not, but it can contribute to to problems and particularly, um, you know, with imbalance in blood sugar can cause all kinds of problems for, 
for people. And then once you get into like prediabetes or other things like that, you know, like that's something that you have to be concerned about. Like sugar becomes really this overwhelming mm-hmm. thing that you do, like becomes very dangerous. You do have to be a, a bit uh, over concerned about it all the time. And so being able to live in that space of balance is really important. And so if you're craving, so that's just what I would be curious about. Like if you're craving ice cream and Oreos every single day, then I think we have a little bigger trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you wouldn't be like, oh, that sounds good. But you know, like actually, you know, indulging in that and over, overdoing it with that is going to potentially cause some imbalances that are potentially um, just not, you know, I think that's going to certainly impact things like digestion, your skin, like other things, if that's what we're feeding our bodies. And mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, I'm t- and like, maybe some people can do that and it, they're, they're fine with it and their body feels good. So I don't want to, I am not the expert on anybody else's body. I do know that for sure. And that, that everybody has to be the, their own expert on their own body. We do have the science that can inform us and we do have, and, and help us, I think, which is supportive, but also not live to it. Like it's like a doctrine or something, you know, it gets just information that we can mm-hmm. do, we can do things with to help support our own health and well-being, and we can try it on. Right. And so, and give it space to feel like, okay, yeah, when I'm eating less sugar, I do feel like yeah. I crave less sugar. I do have more energy. You know, I am less sluggish in the afternoons. And so that's also often my encouragement is like that it becomes something that you test out on yourself and really see what, what makes you feel good. And because you, at the end of the day, I think every individual knows what their body wants and needs and not me, not anybody else. And so those decisions need to be very individualized and personalized. If you feel like you're making those choices, but you don't really know that that's what your body wants and needs, that's where it's great to get support and help and really kind of work through with like a, you know, a health coach or somebody who can support those those awarenesses a little more deeply. If you're like, I just don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel so confused about what my body wants and needs. If I am craving ice cream and Oreos every single day. And so that's just, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But the the positive thing is like, if you are really, let's say you do crave ice cream every single day, but you don't necessarily feel like it's right for your body or doesn't make you feel good. Then there are great opportunities to like, you know, do like, um, amazing like sorbets in your blender mm-hmm. with <laughs> strawberries bananas. and bananas yep. and whatever and you know have you know and so there are ways to still kind of if you do have a sweet tooth that needs to be um you know kind of like <laughs> treated on a regular yeah. basis then there and you feel like and you don't you know that you know the ice cream and oreos is not the right avenue for you and you don't feel like that's what your body wants and needs then yeah there's these other things that we can go towards that can provide a sense of feeling pleasure from the sweetness, but also feel like, and I'm getting these great nutrients. And so it's like a, a, you know, it kind of is a win-win. Yeah. And I think that's really important for people to understand is that as you kind of go along with the real food way of eating and getting your body into more of a blood sugar balancing state, like your body does balance out, your taste buds do adapt. You do start noticing changes that are deeper and more motivating than a number on the scale. It's the energy levels. It's the lack of the 4 PM slump. It's the better sleep. It's the clear skin. So when you can sort of start out and then have these experiences, like you're saying, and then awareness for them, using them as information to keep propelling you forward, that can be really powerful. Um, but also back to the taste buds adapt thing, like, I know for me, like I probably have a little, I call it my sweet treat almost every single day. It's like a healthified, um, 
like dessert or whatever, or, you know, I love the plant-based cakes and cheesecakes that I have in my cookbook more than any of those traditional sweets out there. So if I'm at a restaurant and everyone around me is ordering dessert after dinner and I'm so full that I probably don't even a want it or B know that I give myself permission to have my healthified things that that makes, I don't ever feel deprived. I don't ever feel like I need to white knuckle or use willpower in order to turn that down because I just know that it's actually going to hurt my stomach and negatively impact my sleep. So it's kind of that dance, that balance between kind of more the objective nutritional science side of things, as well as the, um, the mindfulness around your choices and what you know is going to serve you. Exactly. Yep. So a couple last final questions. Um, what does kind of like self love self trust, like what does that all have to kind of do with this in establishing a more positive relationship with food? So self, I think self trust in particular is one of the hardest places to get to. And that's often where, you know, particularly if the self-saboteur, you know, that deal-maker part of self is more in control or, or really in that negative thought pattern of not feeling good enough, then you feel very much mm-hmm. like, I mm-hmm. can't trust myself. Well, goodness, like, <laughs> how could I trust myself when I can't even seem to get out of bed and like take a walk like I say I'm going to do? Yeah. And so that is something that we, you know, start with those kind of the small, doable, desirable steps that become consistent and we try to pair them in with something like, you know, like, are, where are you going to get a vegetable today? You know, or where are you going to, instead of like trying to do an overhaul, trying to do something perfect and perfectly, you know, instead being like, what is one thing I can get done? And I know I can. And so we start building on the self-trust over time mm-hmm. and then really being able to, at the end of the day, reflect on, Hey, I said, I was going to meditate for one minute today and I did it, you know, like, go me. And it it starts to feel like, okay, yeah, I could commit to that because it wasn't overwhelming. It didn't jar my nervous system. It didn't put me into a fear state that I'm just going to fail. It was doable. It was really doable. It was one minute. I did it and I survived. And so that allows you to build on the process over time. So that I think is a shift that starts to happen with all of this internal work and with, and with a lot of, you know, just kind of practical, you know, setting goals, getting what is the action step and then being able to really see what actions am I taking consistently and then recognizing that savoring those moments when you feel successful. Confidence is a memory of success. And so when we continue to do things and feel successful at it, then we feel more confident. Yeah. Celebrating those small wins. I think you just need to learn how to give yourself a pat on the back. Absolutely. I'm even a big fan of star sticker charts. I think. I mean, <laughs> the gold stickers, check marks, all they the, do the trick. Fingers, you know, we're, we're, we're hugely, we have a huge reward system in yeah. part of our brain. And so like setting goals and like having a present for yourself, if you meet it, you know, those are great things to do, you know, for sure. Right there with you. Um, okay. So before I ask my very last question, um, let's talk about where people can find you. So my website is holisticfoodtherapy.com and that's holistic with a WH for whole foods and whole person. Um, I also, I have a, a workbook and expressive journal called holistic food therapy that I wrote almost four years ago. And so that's available on Amazon or on my website. Um, 
Where else can people find me? I am on Instagram at holistic food therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those mm-hmm. are, those are a few places. <laughs> okay. Well, everyone listening, if this episode has resonated with you, then please reach out to her because she is an amazing support system. And, um, you know, I think again, part of being human is being able to ask others for support and help. And I think that's the wonderful thing about a coach and especially you with so much to offer your clients. Um, I just know how valuable you and your work are. So, thank you. So I, um, I, I like to ask this question and I ask it to, um, many guests, but if you could stand on a pedestal and shout your message having to do with all of this in one to three sentences, what would you want your audience to hear? (laughs) (laughs) Put you on the spot there. Yeah. Just, I think like (laughs) believe in yourself, you know, get support, and, and most importantly, like, you know, just know that there's hope. Like when you know there's the possibility for change that you really want, you know there's hope. And it's there, if you've tried a hundred things, you gotta try 101 maybe, it's yeah. okay. Yeah, and that we're all human and we all struggle in so many different ways. And so being able to not feel shame from that, but to reach out and to, yeah, just to feel like, feel some level of hope, I think is the most important. Yeah. And I think that's so important for people to understand. And that's why we're having this conversation because I know firsthand that, um, you know, if you are struggling with anything that we've talked about today, like you're not alone, like it's much more common than people think. And so I think that right there can be, um, soothing to, to know. So, well, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. I know this is, um, going to help a lot of people who are listening. So I really appreciate it and always love having these conversations with you and know we'll be in touch. So thank you again so much. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate being here and yeah, I hope if, if it resonates with one person, that's wonderful. Yeah. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthified podcast and hope you enjoyed this episode. If it resonated with you, please share it with a friend or rate and review the podcast, which helps us share the health with more people. For further learning, be sure to check out the linked resources in the show notes and you can connect with us on Instagram at Healthified and at Gratified. Until next time.